So remember, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. I am making a slight course correction in the way I'm shaping these times together. I have been, as you know, using questions asked by Jesus as a guide, and I will continue to do that. But based on a number of factors, I'm making a slight change. And among those factors are, as I mentioned last week, that I am committed to doing what I can to heal the various divides that exist in various groups in this country and wherever I can do that. That's kind of moved to the top of my teaching goals, to heal the divisions. It starts as an inside job. I've also gotten, both in person and via email, numerous requests to clarify and or amplify on the two phrases I used the last couple of Sundays. One was saying, don't go right, don't go left, go deep. And the other phrase, which is grow up, clear up, wake up. So people have asked, what do you mean? How can we do this? And although in the past I've talked about the limiting qualities and even the dangers of labels, I want to go further than that. And also, even though in times past, I've offered, I tried to count up this week, how many different models of psychological and spiritual growth that we've talked about in here, some based from Piaget or Richard Rohr or uh, Lawrence Kohlberg or a number of other people. But I don't think we've talked a lot about how to appropriate personally those levels of growth and how to have ways of measuring them and knowing whether in those key qualities that I keep harping on, peace, love, joy, patience, and humility, how we can measure how we're doing in that. And um, although there, I am aware that there are numerous para-religious movements that reflect healthy growth and development. Richard Rohr's uh, Center for Action and Contemplation would be one. Ilya Delio Amiga's foundation would be one. These really don't get the attention they deserve in our culture. I think that the public understanding of religion and appropriating religion is regressing in the public eye rather than going forward. The, the, the public face of religion seems incredibly ignorant and immature. Just this week, there was on the news a photograph of a group of people standing on the coast somewhere in Carolina with their hands held out like this as if to block something. And the news report say, says, Florida believers say prayer stopped Hurricane Dorian from coming on shore. <clears throat> and they believe, sincerely believe, that their prayers were answered. Maybe they did not see this. Or maybe God just is pissed off at these people in the Bahamas 
and heard the prayer of the Floridians and not the prayers of the Bahaman, however you say their name. So this cartoon says, I can't deal with any famines, massacres, or epidemics right now. I've got to help some guy sink a foul shot. That same week, there was an online news article from the Religious News Service. How many of you check out the Religious News Service from time to time? It is a nonpartisan, very good source of how to get information about what's going on in various religious organizations, Christian, Jewish, Muslim, whatever. It's a good source. Just type Religious News Service into your browser and you will get it. There was an article in, on the Religious News Service that said, um, I'm virtually quoting that no matter what our president said or did would not in any way affect the majority of evangelical Christians from their support of him because they fervently believe he has been placed in office by God. <laughs> now, <clears throat> you may be a Trump supporter and that is your choice, but I don't think God is responsible. I don't think God helps people sink foul shots. To believe that there is an external theistic being that directs hurricanes, elects politicians, or helps quarterbacks throw winning touchdowns is worse than bad theology. It's dangerous. It guarantees a stunted future for the Christian religion. Now, I know all the arguments for and against organized Christianity. So far, I have not seen a home for children started by agnostics or a hospital started by atheists. What the Christian religion needs is a complete rethinking of all of our theological concepts from the ground up in light of the, the new cosmology. And even more, we need to grow up. We need to become adults in our faith, in our behavior. Just think about it. Nuclear arsenals have been entrusted to world leaders who more often than not act like three-year-olds. And the last factor I will mention taking me in this direction uh, is that I do believe that we are living in a time like no other. When Adam and Eve were walking out of the Garden of Eden, Adam turned to Eve and said, My dear, we live in an age of transition. And so do we. Now, I know that's been true for many ages, periods, epochs in history to say nothing of the history of the planet or the solar system or the universe or the cosmos. We humans are really too narcissistic to go much further than the planet. We really do think the story is all about us, and we don't grasp how small a part of the evolutionary story we are a part of. I'm content to let it sit with us for the time being. But you got to know, there is a much, much, much bigger picture. Um, we humans are, comparatively speaking, like the fly on the rump of a cow. And we can be flicked off with that cow's tail at, at, at any time. More cartoons. The sun is saying to the earth, I'm sorry, I'm afraid you have humans. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
And another one that says, I had a feeling it would be dangerous to give apes that much intelligence. <laughs> Several months ago now, I was talking to a dear friend of mine, one of the brightest guys I know. He's scientifically trained and, and psychologically trained, and he is a Buddhist by chosen spiritual practice. And some event had occurred in our world. I really don't remember what it was. Maybe another mass shooting, another world leader having a temper tantrum, perhaps another climate crisis, I don't remember. And I was talking to him, and I said, what do you think of the future of the world? And um, what I really meant, what do you think about us? How are we, how, what's our future? And, and he said, um, oh, the earth will be fine. He had taken me literally. The earth may react like a wet dog and shake itself free of that which bothers her. The earth will be fine. I think the cosmologists would tell us that that's true. We may not be. As far as my records show, the first time I used the phrase, the great turning, was in here in about three years ago, in 2015. I, I don't remember whether I got the phrase from Joanna Macy or Richard Rohr, Joanna Macy, I think, in her book on hope. That's not as important as the fact that I had begun to experience what only I've been able to formulate. And um, th that is that what was, even the certainty that we had, many of us, about the, the security and firmness of liberal democracy, that's gone. The foundations on which the church has built, been built, that's gone. And, and we don't yet have something in place to stand on. You see this to be true in virtually every area of our lives. Governments around the world are moving mostly to the right or they're in upheaval. We're in a reactionary mode. And coping with change is one of the most destabilizing experiences for humans. And right now, we are witnessing some of the most massive changes in human history. Whether one agrees with global warming or not, the evidence seems to indicate the ice caps are melting, storms are increasing in frequency and intensity, heat indexes are climbing, the frequency and body count of mass shootings is climbing. The global crisis being caused by people fleeing their homeland because of scarcity of food and water or because of war and violence or because of ethnic cleansing and other reasons, that's overwhelming the resources of countries where they're going. We're just on the front edge of this country being forced to face the consequences of decades of racial injustice, and on and on it goes. I love my gadgets. Um, I love my new pajamas, too. <laughs> um, and I promise I'm not intending to be judgmental or critical, but more and more, I see more and more people glued to their phones everywhere, or they have ear pods in their heads. I sit behind people in my car who are oblivious to the light having changed green because they've either died 
or they have narcolepsy, or they're on their device. And I rudely have to honk my horn, and they... So I have given this talk, and actually it's the beginning of a, of a kind of shift, a very ambitious title, The Hinge of History, First and Final, Foresee and Forestall. I want to unpack that a little bit. As I'm saying, we live in a, in a great turning. Now, that may have been true for Adam and Eve and other great times in the past. And I hope, I hope it will be true for future generations. Um, but it's certainly true for us. As you know, uh, I love to read. I read a lot. And uh, I remember when uh, there was no Kindle. And uh, Kindle came out in 2007. And the way I learned of the Kindle is that one of my clients showed up one day and had this device. And I said, what's that? And he said, it's a Kindle. And he explained it to me. <coughs> I just had to have one, of course. And by the time I ordered it, they were out, and they quit making that Kindle. They came out with a different model, and then they came out with other. And you know the, they, how they do that for on you. They let you buy a device, and then that goes out of style, and you have to buy a new one. So right now, I own a Kindle White. That's what it looks like in a case. This device holds 8,800 books. If I live another 82 years, I could never read that many books. My first cell phone looked like this. I'm serious. It, was, it looked like a brick. It weighed a brick. And then after I had this, I had a flip phone. You remember flip phones? And the flip phone would make phone calls. It would also send texts, but I didn't know how to do that, being an old person. And little did I anticipate that what was coming would be that the preferred way of communication between people would be to send text, not to talk. I lived, as many of you, in an era where none of this existed. None of it. When I was a child, we did not have a television set till I was in uh, junior high. And when we did, it got two channels. They were on from four to 10. Some of you remember that. They went off the air with a 15 minute newscast by a guy named John Cameron Swayze. Came on at 10 o'clock, sponsored by Timex or by Camel Cigarettes. One camera shot on him for 15 minutes. And then um, he would sign off and on would come usually some white man, Protestant, to give a devotional. And then they would play the Star Spangled Banner and the Blue Angels would fly over and the TV would go off for the rest of the night. <laughs> 20 years later and all these things fit in your pocket. That's on one side of the gap. We're heading into the other, and we don't know what's there. I know that my grandchildren never lived in the world that I'm talking about. 
my oldest granddaughter is now in the university, and I remember babysitting her when she just learned to walk. Uh, we were uh, on a big family holiday in, in Canada, and I had been left alone with her for the afternoon. I was terrified. <laughs> she was having a ball because she just learned to walk. And she walked around the house, waddled, holding on to things, and she'd gotten hold of the remote for the TV. She didn't know what it was or how it worked, but she walked around doing this. <laughs> because she had learned that it did something. First, final, final, first. Some of you are in the first generation to experience the digital age, and some of us are the last. Some of us are the first to foresee what's coming at our institutions, with our climate, with our relations, and we may be the final to forestall the most catastrophic of the consequences that are to come. Again, I know it's been said, or other times, that we're living on this hinge of history in the midst of a great turning. I think this is a great time to be alive because it's going to call from, forth from us our best. And how do we rise to meet it? So we're going to spend the next several weeks talking about this great turning and how to go forward. I hope that's okay, what it means to have an adult faith, what it means to take personal responsibility for all of it. I'm not abandoning using the questions of Jesus, but I'm putting these other matters closer to the front because there is a question this talk is based on. And the question from uh, Jesus is, so what's that to you? I want to read to you an edited portion from uh, the writing in the Christian Testament that goes by the title of the Gospel of John. Now, this writing is the most metaphorical of all the writings that we have, and it is from this writing that we get the verse that I'll bet almost all of you know by heart. It is the one that is held up at football games, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believed in him may not perish, but, having, but have everlasting life. So I remember the day in seminary. I remember the classroom on the second floor. I remember where I was sitting in the classroom when a professor began teaching us that not only did Jesus not say this, but that the entire episode from which it is drawn is a creation of the early followers of Jesus. Now, this is one of many professors at that seminary who would teach us Jesus taught in parables. The followers of Jesus taught parables about Jesus. It was like, wow, I had never seen that, never heard that, never been, been told that. Later on, I would discover that there's only one line in the Gospel of John that can authentically be attributed to Jesus. And that's the one that reads, a prophet has no honor in the prophet's own country. Peterson translates that, Jesus knew well from experience that a prophet is not respected in the place where he grew up. 
Now, for those biblical scholars of you sitting out there, I want to be clear that the questions that we're going to hear from Jesus today are not considered from Jesus. They're not in the Jesus database of the Jesus scholars. They're not even in the Gospel of John. They're in an addendum that was written to the Gospel of John by somebody else after John was written. It is in the Christian Testament. But this passage gives us a vitally important insight into how Jesus' earliest followers understood who they were and how they were to live. These two questions, who are we and how are we to live, they are at the heart of all wise and compassionate spiritual undertaking. And I'm using these verses because in two previous talks, you might remember, I used an interaction, two interactions between Peter and Jesus. Remember? The first one was that Peter is in the courtyard warming himself while Jesus is inside going through the mock trials. And three times, somebody comes up to Peter and says, you're one of Jesus' followers, aren't you? And Peter says, no, I don't know the man. Three times that happened. Now, you know that that's a literary device because earlier in John, Jesus had said to Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter said, no, I would never do a thing like that. Promise, cross my heart. And he did. Then... After the trial, Jesus had led out of the palace, and he and Peter lock eyes. And there's no, there's no words about what passed between them, but I ask you to imagine what it was that Peter saw in the eyes of Jesus. And my hunch is that it was not condemnation. It was something like, Peter, I still love you. Now, remember, all of this was written down decades after it happened. So I'm going to read you an edited selection from this addendum to John. That's a follow-up. And you see the three things is going to be repeated here. Notice the questions and responses. After breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these meaning the other disciples. Yes, Master, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Then he asked a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Master, you know I love you. Jesus said, shepherd my sheep. Then he said it a third time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was upset that he had asked for the third time, do you love me? And so he answered, Master, you know everything there is to know. You've got to know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I'm telling you the truth now, Peter. When you were young, you dressed yourself and went whatever, wherever you wished. But when you get old, you're going to have to stretch out your hands while someone else dresses you and takes you where you don't want to go. Follow me. Turning his head, 
Peter noticed the disciple Jesus loved. Evidently, this is a reference to John, following behind them. And when Peter noticed him, Peter said to Jesus, well, what's going to happen to him? And Jesus said, what's that to you? You follow me. So the questions, and we'll be taking them in the opposite order, do you love me? And what's that to you? Or what business is that of yours? And you follow me. Now you know yourself, there's a huge difference between experiencing something and the way you try to explain that experience to other people. And we make the assumption that just because we've explained something to somebody of something that has happened to us or something that we believe that they got it, right? Have you ever had a child tell you about a dream they had or about a movie they've seen? You ever had that experience? They come on the movie and then they went and then they got all, and, the, and then, and then, and you just are flooded with all these words. And, and, and the kid says the whole movie from first to last, including popcorn. <clears throat> and they think when they've done it, you got it. And you don't, you don't have it. Knowing the difference between experience and explanation is hugely important in doing religious and theological reconstruction because our practices rest on the foundation of do we understand. That seminary professor I mentioned who taught us what he did about John 3.16 illustrated this beautifully for us. I'd grown up in a church reading the Bible and knew the stories. I knew about John 3.16. I knew about Nicodemus coming at night. I knew that. And so the professor said, Nicodemus need to keep his identity a secret. So he came to Jesus at nighttime so nobody would know. It was just the two of them who reported the story. Well, <laughs> well, didn't seem like Jesus would be bragging about something like that, does it? Nicodemus, who had to keep his identity secret, would likely not have told it. So where did it come from? So then the professor had two students stand and read the conversation that took all night. Had one read the part of Jesus and one read the part of Nicodemus and another person had a stopwatch. And the professor said, go, read it. It took less than three minutes, this conversation that lasted all night. First century experiences are explained using first century thought forms, first century presuppositions, first century vocabulary. And we, if we literalize any of that, we literalize a mentality that is dated and doomed. That's why... Biblical literalism becomes biblical nonsense. You know my love of Gothic architecture. Uh, during the time that we were doing the St. Nicholas pilgrimage in Italy, I read the first of Ken Follett's trilogy on that period of time when the great cathedrals were built in England and beyond. This is the first of three volumes, Pillars of the Earth. It covers the period of time from 1135 to 1174. 
And it is about the construction of the Salisbury Cathedral in England. Now, I'm interested in that because in 2021, the choir is going to go to Salisbury, and I'm going to tag along. No, Salisbury State did not come from Salisbury. <laughs> Salisbury State was invented by an American doctor in 1897 with the goal to introducing more fatty meat into people's diets. You need to learn something besides religion in here. Just... <laughs> so uh, Pillars of the Earth is a huge trilogy, and it's about this cathedral, which took over 100 years to build. And the books give us an insight into the world of people who lived in that time. Sanitary conditions were awful. What is accepted as personal hygiene was what anybody in this room would find repulsive. Total bathing once a year. No oral hygiene whatsoever. The most common treatment for illness was bleeding. Most people could not read. Life expectancy was between 30 and 40. Someone who made it to their late 50s was considered aged. Now, clearly, there's brilliance behind the building of this cathedral, and some people could read, and some people even went to the university. But their worldview was dramatically different. It was static. It was fixed. The sun and the moon revolved around the earth, and they and the five stars that they knew about and called planets were moved by angels. There were two, maybe three heavens. There was a place where the stars were, and then there was maybe another heaven, and then there was heaven where paradise was. Europe was the center of the earth, and earth was the center of the universe. And the resources of earth were limitless. Today we know so much more. And even though there are some people who don't believe this to be true, I'm going to back this up, uh, most people now know that the universe began with a cosmic explosion that happened about a long time ago, Big Bang. They're not one or two galaxies, but 300 billion, each having about 100 billion stars. The Earth is a relatively small planet revolving around a really minor star in a galaxy that's kind of on the edge of things, and in, 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 in a planetary system that's kind of on the edge of things. We human beings are the, the product of an evolutionary movement on Earth, and we're learning, I hope, that we are intimately linked with the health, health of the delicate, delicately balanced life system on the planet, and that all of us have a common descent, all of us have a common ancestry. I got a catalog this week for T-shirts. And there were some extremely clever ones in it. One of the best in it said, I hate people who don't know the difference between your and your. They're so stupid. <laughs> Isn't that a great t-shirt? 
please don't let me have to explain this to anyone. <laughs> There's another one in it that said, the fact that jellyfish have survived for over 650 million years despite not having brains gives hope to many people. <laughs> But the one that really caught my attention was the one about pirates. You know, we go through phases in our culture periodically where pirate jokes come up all of a sudden, and there was this T-shirt about pirates. And under it, for those of you who can't read, it says, white, black, gay, straight, religious, atheist, and pirate. <laughs> and you get the joke, right? You get to deeper truth too, right? That underneath we're all the same. And yet we live in a culture where there is a rise of white supremacy, where people are making a distinction on the basis of something that's a fraction of an inch deep. How ignorant, how frightened. There's an article on the front page of the Houston Chronicle this past Friday with the headline, For LBGTQ Students at Baylor, Work is Not Done. You know the story? Members of the LBGTQ student group had been campaigning for months for the administration at least to meet with them and formally recognize their student group. Their request was turned down. The president of the university, a religious school, some really great people graduated from Baylor. I just went over <laughs> Pointed to the university statement on its webpage that states, Christian churches across the ages and around the world have affirmed purity and singleness and fidelity in marriage between a man and a woman as the biblical norm. The article goes on to say, it is expected that Baylor students will not participate in advocacy groups which promote understandings of sexuality that are contrary to biblical teaching, which include heterosexual sex outside of marriage and homosexual behavior. I do not have the energy to go into how wrong this is on so many levels, biblical, theological, historical, sociological, etc. But it is an example of the growing irrelevancy of religious institutions today. Now, here's something important about what I'm going to say, and I have to come back and talk about this again next week because I can see the questions growing. Our theological tradition has been shaped within the worldview that built Salisbury Cathedral. The great theological synthesis of Thomas Aquinas was written at the time Salisbury Cathedral was constructed. The creeds which we say in church come from an even earlier period, an even earlier worldview. We're facing an ecological crisis that is coming out of a worldview that was built in the 11th and 12th century. We face a humanitarian crisis that is growing out of fearful ignorance. We can do better. We must do better. We are the first generation 
to foresee what's going on in all of these arenas. And we are perhaps the final generation with a real opportunity to forestall the most catastrophic consequences if we cannot bring about change. Now, how are we going to do this? How are we going to clean up? How are we going to grow up? How are we going to wake up? So I'm going to go give you a hint of things to come. One of the things that would help us to do is to develop some moral humility. One of the things this means is that we have to own up to how tribal we are. All of us. Now, when I say the word tribal, you likely think of things some centuries ago or perhaps things that happen on some other part of the country. When you go home this afternoon, you turn on your television set and you will see that we have entered the era of tribalism. <laughs> or if you don't want to wait till this afternoon, when this class is over, you just walk across the plaza and go in that building and you'll see another tribe. That's not St. Paul's, by the way. These are real Christians. The picture I took in Europe. Now, here's something to hold in front of you as a lens through which to see these tribal people. Every member of every tribe that you will encounter or that you are a part of thinks they're right. Every member of every tribe thinks they're right. Ain't no exceptions. There was a columnist I used to read years ago. His name was Sidney Harris. He lived in Chicago and wrote, he wrote a number of books. He died in 1986, and I miss him still. I have a collection of his writings, his books, his quotes. They're just so great. You can look him up on the, on the Internet, and I think they even have a collection of some of his best quotes. Uh, one of my favorite of his is he said, Most of us are broad-minded enough to admit that there are two sides to every question our own side, and the side that no intelligent, informed, sane, and self-respecting citizen could possibly hold. Everybody thinks they're right. You're not going to convince somebody who differs with you politically by a Facebook post or a Twitter feed. It only shames them or further alienates them. We, we need to have some adult maturity and humility. I think of the Dalai Lama as a model for this. What moral humility this man has. And another way that we are a hinge in time is that in countries around the world, including our own, people don't just, don't just dislike other tribes. They see them as a threat and something to be gotten rid of. Now, you're good people. You're good moral people. All of us want a fair world for everybody. But we have differing understandings, likely, about issues of loyalty and authority and respect. But you and I have to decide every day when we get up whether we're going to participate at the heart level in what I call the religion of rightness. 
Do we really believe that no one should be treated as we ourselves would not want to be treated? And if so, how do we work within whatever tribe we are a part of to spread this education? Jonathan Haidt, uh, in a talk I heard him give recently, he's the author of the pivotal book, uh, The Righteous Mind. He said that the greatest miracle on earth is not the Grand Canyon. Um, he said, you know, that just took some water in a few million years. He said the greatest miracle on earth is that people figured out how to live together in the Grand Canyon. And that those living together places grew into cities of large communities of people who learned how to cooperate for the greater good of all. Now, that's a hint, things to come. I just, I, I, I want you to know that there are millions of people on this planet who are taking the kind of journey that we are attempting. They don't, just don't get a lot of press. You won't find them in churches, in a lot of churches, sadly. Indeed, many Religions and churches are actively opposed to the kind of things that you hear me teach about in here. But we're in a movement that is here to stay. We seek to explore and embrace what it means to have a grown-up, cleaned-up, waked-up faith and allow it to not only enrich us and nourish us, but to provide resources for enrichment and nourishment of other people. So I want you to, to just put your spiritual hearing aids in and listen to Jesus. He says, do you love me? Now, if you don't say yes, you ain't going to hear nothing else. That's it. But if you do say yes, he says, feed my sheep. And if you say, yeah, but what about... He says, what's that to you? You follow me. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I will see you here next week. Thank you.